You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Tracy Peterson is an award-winning author of over 100 novels, both historical and contemporary. Her avid research resonates in her many best-selling series. She and her family make their home in Montana. Tracy Peterson, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Yes, we are so glad to have you back on. The last time you were here, we were talking about Beyond the Desert Sands, which is book two in your Love on the Santa Fe series. And now you're starting a whole new series and readers are traveling with your fantastic characters all the way to the Pacific Northwest. So Washington State is a long way from the Santa Fe Trail, which spans from Independence, Missouri to present day Santa Fe, New Mexico. What inspired such a drastic change in settings for this series? I love to explore different places. And as I read, I read a lot of nonfiction as well as fiction and watch documentaries and such. And as I was reading, I found out about the Alaska Yukon Pacific Exposition of 1909 being held in Seattle. And I knew that I had to write about it. I just thought this World's Fair needs someone to record it. (laughs) And so I started researching it. And there was just so many fun things about it. And You'll never know for sure from one time to another where I'll end up. So the Pacific Northwest seemed like a great place to go. Mm-hmm. It is just beautiful up here. Seattle is such a unique city and just exploring yet another World Fair. I've seen a couple books on World Fairs, but I'm not familiar with one particularly in Seattle. So you'll have different things on, on this side of uh of the nation over here on the the West Coast. So very exciting. I'm wondering, what do you love about the Pacific Northwest? Oh, so much. I'm, I'm just, I'm enthralled with the gorgeous trees, the uh, over in the uh, Olympia uh, side, uh, the rainforest type effect. I love the water. I, you know, I, there's just so much to love about the Northwest and Seattle in particular has so many charms. And when you read about the history of the area and whatnot, it's, it's just wonderful. I mean, there's just so many things that you can bring out in story form. And so when I came across the Alaska, Yukon and Pacific exposition, they, they called it the AYP. It seemed like, you know, here was something that really helped Seattle to expand. And it's, like I said, 1909, they make a deal with the University of Washington to hold it on their campus, actually. And of course, the campus was a lot of empty land at that point with just a very few buildings. But when the the fair came, they made a deal with the university and, and left several permanent buildings. And then they landscaped the area and they brought in like 50,000 different plants to landscape and they built fountains and they made wonderful walkways. And it was just a real big package deal for the area. And it, it was kind of like a second boom. You know, you had the, in, in uh, the late 1890s, 
the uh, Yukon Gold Rush, and Seattle just absolutely boomed then because it became a stopping place to pick up supplies to go north to Alaska and the Gold Rush. And so this was kind of like another boom for them because it brought in millions of people. And so in doing so, they had to expand their streetcar system, their sewer lines. They built new hotels and all sorts of restaurants and whatnot and provided all sorts of deals for transportation and for the visitors. And so it was really something that turned out to be great for Seattle. That is interesting. I had no clue that that was something that helped the city grow so much. I mean, it makes sense. And it kind of still happens today, like when they're going to hold the World Cup, for instance, in a particular city or country, you know, and then so much is invested in that city to help support all the people who are going to be traveling in. But yeah, I guess we think of it as a modern thing. But no, that's how Seattle, for instance, um, (laughs) had one of its growth spurts. (laughs) Yes. That is super cool. Now, of all the places that you've visited and researched, which location intrigued you the most? Oh, I think Alaska. You know, I've written, let's see, by now, probably a dozen or more books that I set in Alaska. I think maybe 20. The entire area is just fascinating. There is so much there that just intrigues and really draws the attention. And, you know, there's lots of shows on now that are set up there to kind of show people the wilderness and the wild side and whatnot. And there's still so much of that there and just this glorious, unspoiled beauty. But there are a lot of stories related to gold rushes or to exploration or in World War II with the uh, Alcan Highway and the soldiers being attacked there in in the Aleutian Islands. And there's just all sorts of history. And I think Alaska would be my choice every time. (laughs) It is beautiful up there. And I had no idea about the Aleutian Islands and uh, the involvement in the World War II. Yeah, I feel like Alaska sort of gets forgotten about. I feel like Hawaii is so beautiful and such a huge tourist destination, you know, not to mention an important stop for trade and shipping and things like that, that, you know, everybody, you know, is at least familiar with Hawaii, but Alaska is just kind of off there way up in the north. And, you know, nobody really knows why we have it or what it's doing up there, you know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it's such a beautiful land and such unique landscape. It is. Yeah. Now, Tracy, I know you've done a lot of interviews over the years, but is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered recently in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? I was thinking about that the other day because it, it seems like this month I've had a lot, probably because of the release of the new book. But throughout my writing career, my writing has always been focused on being a ministry. And I always like to share with the readers kind of how I came around to doing what I do. And when I was little, I was a rambunctious child. So my mother would give me a piece of paper and pencil to keep me quiet in church. And afterwards, though, she would always ask me to tell her, tell her my story. And so I credit her with helping me to develop my storytelling skills because I knew I would get some undivided attention and time with my mother, I would sit there and actually think up stories and probably inadvertently listen to the message too. But (laughs) 
as I grew older, you know, writing was always just something I loved. And as I got into high school, I wanted to take creative writing, but you had to apply for it. And I was rejected and devastated. The teacher said I didn't show enough creativity or imagination. And so I just turned book 140 in today. And I would totally, if she were still alive, I would send her a copy of every book. But (laughs) I don't have a college degree. I couldn't get in creative writing. But God wanted me to use my storytelling love for him. And I just am so blown away even now after 140 books that I get to do this for a living and get to serve him at the same time. And so I am just so blessed and thankful to all my readers, to you ladies for what you do, and just want you to know that you're all a part of this ministry that God's given and that it's really touching lives and changing hearts. And many has been the time I've gotten letters from people who have just told me how the books have blessed them or help them to understand something better in the Bible. And so my goal continues to be to share the gospel and to give biblical encouragement. I love hearing that, how your mom saw this in you and encouraged this in you. And, oh, teacher missed it, but God knew what he was doing. (laughs) That's cool. That's cool. I think so. It reminds me of the verse in uh, Proverbs chapter 16, it says that a man plans his course, but God determines his steps and how, you know, we may understand like a talent and a love and a passion we have for something and and just kind of plan that way and, and pursue that. But God guides each of those steps, taking us to that place where we can use our talents that he's given us to really serve him in the best way. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and get to talking about your latest release, Remember Me. Addie Bryant grew up in the heart of northwestern Canada in the Yukon Territory. It is here that she met and fell in love with Isaac Hansen. When Isaac left the territory, they vowed to love each other and to find each other one day. But life does not always turn out as planned. When Addie's father dies, she is sold to a brothel owner. Although Addie manages to escape, she realizes that the future she always dreamed of will never be hers. She has vowed to keep her past forever hidden, but the past has a way of catching up to the present. Years later, Addie has found peace and significance in her new life as a photographer, training camera girls to operate the Kodak Brownie camera. While attending the Alaska-Yukon Pacific Expo in Seattle, her past resurfaces as she is reunited with her former beau. Addie must decide whether to run or to stay. Can she face her wounds in order to embrace her life, her future, and her hope in God? So I'm seeing some similar themes in this book, as we've seen in some of your other books, which is overcoming hardship and experiencing forgiveness. Addie especially has just so much to overcome. How did you tackle such a sensitive topic in a way that doesn't negate the suffering of the real victims when it comes to uh, sex trafficking? Well, in my research, I tried to be very careful about not focusing on the things that were done or the attitudes and and sinful nature of man and whatnot, but rather to turn it around and bring us back to what can happen when God takes control. And at the time I wrote this book, I had a couple of different gals that I was 
working with counseling and talking to. And both of them were caught up in things from their past that they blamed themselves for or felt unworthy of being able to move forward. And these were things that were done to them, not things that they had sought to do. So it wasn't their sin, but they were bearing it and carrying it around as if it were. And they were just so overwhelmed with a sense of guilt and grief and remorse. And as we talked and as we sought scripture and and whatnot, it really just came to me that so often we carry things that we were never meant to carry. And God really wants us to be able to just leave them at the cross. And so I created a character, my Addie character, who was guiltless with the things that were done to her and put upon her. And yet she took that on herself, feeling unworthy of love, feeling that she was not entitled to be forgiven and considered a good person or considered worthy of the the future that she had dreamed of. And so as I worked on that and developed her character more, it really was one of those things that just kind of hit me in the face that there are so many people out there who are carrying burdens that aren't theirs, that God is just really more than happy to take that off our shoulders. But we, we sometimes fight him over that. And we sometimes continue to hang on to things and I think that we have to learn to let those things go and give them over to, to God who can deal with them so much better than we can. And I love that she's reunited with the young man that she had fallen in love with and made these plans with prior to um, the suffering she experienced because love stories <laughs> are just beautiful and complex. But to kind of bring it back to what she had hoped for before experiencing that trial and how God can still fulfill those dreams and those desires is just really beautiful. And it sounds like this story is about the future. Like the story is not one of where she's coping with, you know, it's all about the past with flashbacks and whatnot. It's her here and now and her new hope and her new life. Right. And the past catching up with her is done in such a way that she has to face it and deal with it once and for all. And I think sometimes we need to do that and be able to reject it once and for all, you know, put it completely away from us and know that that we can move forward in the Lord free and clear. That makes such a difference in our lives when we can have that liberty, that freedom in Christ. And so with Addie, you know, she had to She had to deal with some of those issues, and she had some good people in her life, uh, a wonderful mentor in the character of Mrs. Fisher. She had all sorts of uh, friends who come alongside her, who care about her and prove to her in their friendship and love that she is worthy. And then, of course, Isaac comes back into her life, and he's been looking for her forever. And so You know, I won't give away all the details of the story, but it is one of those second chance stories that I think is so indicative of God's love for us. You're preaching there. That's good. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about Isaac and how 
you know, he's been searching for her, but then when he finds her, she is going to be a completely different person than the woman he left. How was it for him to learn to know her again and support her? Well, the neat thing about Isaac is that that he's done his homework. He's tried to find her. And so as he's tried to, to locate her, he's talked to some of the people from her past. And he knows a lot of what she had to face. And she doesn't realize that he knows. And so she thinks that she's got this big, dreadful, horrible secret to keep from him. And all the time he knows and he doesn't care. He knows it wasn't her fault, the things that happened to her. He regrets them and hates that people would misuse her the way they did. But he loves her. And for him, he sees beyond the past and the things that other people imposed upon her. And so when he comes back into her life, he's just delighted. And he's over the moon because finally he's found her and now they can be married. And he doesn't realize just how much bondage she's been in to the past and to all the things that happened to her. So with Isaac, he's just got to learn to be patient, but he's not very patient at the (laughs) beginning. (laughs) That is so interesting. It can be that way, I feel like, in real life the things that are in our past that we think make us less than to other people. Actually, the people who care about us, that doesn't make a difference. But we can kind of take so much on ourselves. So that that's an interesting angle to explore as well. Yeah. And you've told us a little bit about the Alaska Yukon Pacific Expo, where Addie and Isaac are reunited. Can you tell us about Addie's involvement in the expo and what she did there? Sure. You know, I found out at the same time that the expo was taking place that Kodak had developed a brownie camera. Uh, Actually, the first time I think was like in 1900, but they had continued to modify and they created this camera that was affordable for the average middle class family. And so for $10, you could buy this camera and you know, now that'd probably be about 500 or whatever, but <laughs> this camera would make postcard size pictures. And so the uh, people that Addie works for and Addie, you know, they put together this idea to create camera girls and they have a little vending photography studio there at the expo and send these girls around the expo taking pictures of people so that they can have a souvenir photo. And this was kind of fictional. This was kind of factual. I mean, the brownie was definitely the camera of the day. And there were people that were doing photography there at the expo. There was an official photographer who took the actual photographs for the expo. But I thought it would be just fun to have these girls going around and meeting people and taking souvenir photos for them. So that's what Addie gets involved in. And as she does this, then she's exposed to a lot of different people, including the girls that she's working with, who she's supervising and and watching over and nurturing and that kind of thing. But the AYP, the expo itself, was such an interesting setup. And they wanted to show the highlights of Alaska and the Yukon and some of the Pacific islands, including Japan, the Philippines, Hawaii, that kind of thing. And so they had various buildings dedicated to different places. 
and you could go in there and see photographs. You could see, like with the Japan building, you could see kimonos and samurai armor and all sorts of pictures of Japan. And they would have ex an exhibit about the foods that were popular in Japan. And people could go there and see, you know, how the writing was done and, and just explore all sorts of things that they normally wouldn't have the ability to learn because they didn't have the internet. They didn't have, you know, some encyclopedias that they could buzz through and, and get a feel for the places. And so it was really, it drew the public so readily into this exposition where other uh, expositions had failed even just a few years before. But this was an extremely popular exposition. And uh, the scandal of the whole exposition was the Philippines uh, exhibit was a village of Native peoples that were pretty much naked, just didn't wear a whole no. lot of clothes at all. And they ate dogs. Oh, wow. <laughs> so everybody was just totally scandalized and protested somewhat. And yet that was one of the more popular places that people went to see, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it was just this wide variety of things that the exposition offered, including rides. They had Ferris wheels and little roller coaster rides, and they had all sorts of food vendors, and they provided all sorts of entertainments with big bands and, uh, you know, choirs and different things like that, that they could entertain people at night. So it was quite the setup and it lasted all summer from June until October 16th in 1909. That is amazing. Everything that was there is like talking about these Alaskan villages and these Philippine villages. It's kind of like what we would experience as like a living history or a reenactment. Now only this was, you know, something from the present. But it's cool, like you say, they didn't have access to even an encyclopedia set, let alone the internet. This was a way that they could go and experience the world. And it actually makes sense that Addie and her team of girls would make a pretty good business out of these souvenir postcards. So I think that's a cool way to have her and her team moving around the expo so that we get to kind of explore everything with them. That sounds really fun. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned you just turned in your 140th novel. So what are you working on next? <laughs> well, I have started a new series set in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And so that's where we're headed next. And uh, I wanted to deal with uh, Cheyenne from, the, from its conception. It was a town along the Union Pacific when the Transcontinental Railroad went in. And so... It has a, a very vivid and violent history and uh, uh, kind of fascinating to watch it spring to life. The, the history that I've so far been able to study and read is pretty interesting. And so I'm hoping to convey that into the stories. Real fun. Oh, that sounds cool. I've uh, researched Cheyenne, not much, just a little bit, just enough to know that uh, one of its monikers was Hell on Wheels. So yes. um, that should be an interesting place to set a book series. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and for our listeners, Tracy has offering a copy of this book, Remember Me. To enter to win, just check out our website, historicalbookworm.com. You can click on the giveaways tab. 
We'll also have a direct link to the giveaway in the show notes for this episode. And Tracy, where can our listeners connect with you? They can connect with me through my website, which is tracypeterson.com, or they can connect with me through Facebook. Uh, it's facebook.com slash author Tracy Peterson, or I believe you can also do Tracy Peterson author. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It's been fun talking with you. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate what you ladies do. Now for a pinch of the past. On today's pinch of the past, we have a special guest, historical romance author, Crystal Caudill. Crystal, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. So what are you going to be sharing with us today? Thanks for having me here. Um, Today, I'm going to talk to us about Houses of Refuge, which were essentially the predecessor to our juvenile justice system. Oh, interesting. So when I heard Houses of Refuge, I automatically thought like maybe houses for women, you know, who had fallen into prostitution, but this is actually for troubled youth. It is. And these troubled youth weren't necessarily arrested for criminal behaviors. They could have actually been put in by their parents for just being children who misbehaved a lot. They were children who were arrested for vagrancy, for being poor and not able to have a place to live. Um, So the reasons they ended up in these jails were for a lot of nonviolent reasons. And so the Houses of Refuge were created because initially all these kids were placed in regular jails and penitentiaries with hardened criminals. And they wanted to protect these children and give them a second chance at life so that they had a chance not to grow up to become more hardened criminals. Man, it's just so hard to imagine a world where these kids who had not really committed any serious crimes would be thrown in with very dangerous people to learn behaviors and potentially be harmed. It's just crazy to think about, actually. It's why this social movement came up is because they really did care about these kids and wanted to give them that future. The movement started in 1825. So they've been around for a long time, the Houses of Refuge, and they're still around, but they've kind of changed. You'll find them more as like boarding school type situations, except for their four troubled youths. I can think of some Christian ones. I can think of some state-ran ones. So they still exist in some form today, but they, when you do research in general, they'll identify Houses of Refuge as the start to the juvenile justice system as we know it with juvenile jails and things like that. Interesting. So who was the kind of spearhead behind this movement? So Thomas Eady and John Griscom created the Society for the Prevention of Pauperism, which led to the first House of Refuge in New York City in 1825. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I even had their names written down. I'm so proud of myself. (laughs) So the initial goal of these Houses of Refuge were to reform and rehabilitate the children, and they were given an education that provided them skills and training and apprenticeships, but they also had their own twists that I'm still really hesitant about. So these kids would stay in for a year at a minimum, and it was highly regimented. They had no time to themselves. 
but at the end of their time, they would be apprenticed or indentured to other people to be trained in these skills and it provided their room and board and the houses of refuge would often get a kickback. Oh. Mm. So you can see where some abuse went in there. And so it was, it's an interesting concept. I know what they wanted to do, but it didn't always work out for the best. I could see how there would definitely be situations of like abuse of authority. And there was abuse of authority within the schools, unfortunately. And they ended up having a lot of the same jail problems with overcrowding, the buildings becoming decrepit, and of course, abuse from those in authority over them. So so how did you come across this research? So I was actually looking at the concept of orphanages for my story, Counterfeit Faith. And then I discovered Houses of Refuge, and I liked that twist on orphanages and bringing to light a group of kids that most society looks down upon. Like, you've broken the law. I don't want anything to do with you. You can't have that second chance. And so I just really got engrossed in the Houses of Refuge, and that's the rabbit hole I went down, and that's where I'm at. That's neat. So do you have some characters in your story that like visit a house of refuge or maybe came from a house of refuge? So my heroine of the story is actually the matron of the girls ward in a house of refuge. And she's noticed abuse going on in the boys ward and she's trying to get help to protect these kids. So you see lots of kids, you see kind of the system and you see her defense of these kids and her heart for them. Oh, that sounds amazing. So this will be for Counterfeit Faith, which is the third and final book, I believe, in your series about the Secret Servicemen, correct? Yes. Yes, it is. All right. Well, that sounds amazing. Thank you for coming on the show and for sharing with us. Now, where can our listeners learn more about you and your books? Uh, the best place is to go to my website, crystalcoddle.com, and you'll see my blog, you'll see books, anything you could want to know. Time for our bookworm review. The Blackout Book Club by Amy Lynn Green. An impulsive promise to her brother before he goes off to the European front puts Avis Montgomery in the unlikely position of head librarian in small town Maine. Though she has never been much of a reader, when wartime needs threaten to close the library, she invents a book club to keep its doors open. The women she convinces to attend the first meeting couldn't be more different. A wealthy spinster determined to aid the war effort an exhausted mother looking for a fresh start, and a determined young war worker. At first, the struggles of the home front are all the club members have in common, but over time, the books they choose become more than an escape from the hardships of life and the fear of the U-boat battles that rage just past their shores. As the women face personal challenges and band together in the face of danger, they find they share more in common with each other than they think. But when their growing friendships are tested by secrets of the past and present, they must decide whether depending on each other is worth the cost. This bookworm review is brought to you by Christy Jane, the historical bookworm review team. World War II, a plethora of wonderful books and a diverse cast of characters make up the latest book from Amy Lynn Green, known as the Blackout Book Club. Each chapter features the daily life and sometimes history of one of four main characters. Avis is the first one we meet, and she's been thrust into the role of librarian on behalf of her brother, who is enlisting in the war. 
We also meet Martina and Jenny, two women who are as different as night and day, but each with their own unique struggles. Louise is the owner of the library, though she does not intend for it to be open much longer. Avis comes up with the idea of the book club as a way to save it from being turned into a nursery school. These four women are the founding members of the Blackout Book Club, and as time goes on, they slowly start adding more townspeople to their ranks. The minutes are taken at each meeting, and these are a fun glimpse into the personality of whoever steps into the role of secretary. As time goes by, each woman must deal with the hand life has dealt them, all while trying to do their part for the war effort and praying that all their men will return home. For fans of World War II fiction, this is a different take on the history of that era. There is mention of victory gardens, women working in factories, and men taking on roles that would have ordinarily made them unfit for traditional military duty. Fans of Christian fiction will be disappointed not to find much faith-based content without, though it is a clean read. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com. 